You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. What's up, Vox and Hops heads? I'm Matt, the vocals of Cryptop C, and you're listening to my podcast, Vox and Hops, where I hang out with fellow metal musicians to talk about their lives, music, and craft beer. I hope that everything is good. I hope that you are safe. I hope that you had a good time, as much as a good time that I had last night at the Vox and Hops Thirsty Thursday Virtual Hang. I do this every week. It is something that I look forward to. We gather together on the internet. We hang out together. We drink some craft beer. I ask some questions. We have a nice little discussion. And I have been challenging the people coming to the Vox and Hops Thirsty Thursday Virtual Hangs to do something creative with their time. And it's been fun to see what some of the people have done. Much love and respect to everyone that's come out. And I also extend the challenge to all of you to, during this time at home, during social isolation, you should take this time and use it creatively. Do something. Push yourself. Don't just languish. Keep moving. I believe in you, and I want to hear what you're doing. Tell me on my social medias, please. On today's episode, I'm with Trevor Sternad from the Black Dahlia Murder. Here it is, Vox and Hops, episode number 130. I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. Hey, what's up, everyone? Today, I'm with Trevor Sternad from the Black Dahlia Murder. I have wanted to have you on the podcast for a very long time, and I am very happy to be with you right now. Even though we are not together, we are together thanks to the internet. Because of COVID-19, everything is fucked up. How are you? How are you handling social isolation? How are you handling everything regarding this garbage? Uh, I'm good, man. I think uh, having this album coming out when it is, is like giving me something to stay positive about, something to be excited about. Uh you know, the pre-orders have been hitting people's porches. Uh, we sent them out a little early, so getting some feedback now, finally, which feels really good. And uh, weirdly, you know, uh, I think it's kind of awesome to have an album coming out right now. You know, it's it, it's going to hurt in regards to that we can't uh, be on tour when it's the first week, you know. that will, We'll lose a few sales there, so I won't be uh, at the merch table making puppy dog eyes at people, you know to buy the new record and uh people won't be able to go to the store either which is you know kind of kind of stinks but otherwise um i think it's a perfect time to drop a record when people have not literally nothing else to do you know what i mean and there's nothing but time to like fester on it so trying to focus on the positive you know that is that is very very wise and it's also very wise that you got the pre-orders together earlier which is uh, very smart as opposed to i'm hearing about a bunch of production plants being in like lockdown and slowed down cut uh, their staff in half so a lot of future releases are going to be fucked by this ah uh, yeah we got really lucky we skated in right before all of that happened you know and uh we were sending out pre-orders early in hopes of like beating a mail shutdown out of uh florida where our uh, stuff is coming from from night shift merch so uh so far so good gotta hand it to kareem at night shift for uh going above and beyond with these orders and in the face of all of this you know but uh i think it's cool to give somebody give the kids something to be excited about right now you know i wanted to touch on that you guys uh, made a switch to night shift merch now because i know i met kareem on my very first u.s tour which was summer slaughter 2008 alongside you and Cataclysm and Kareem was the tour manager of the whole tour. Am I right about that? Or was he just your tour manager? Uh, I'm not sure if he was meant to be the tour manager of the whole tour, but he kind of just like had to kind of take the reins, you know what I mean, a little bit. But uh, he, you know, he was a longtime tour manager of ours before he left to join with uh, Indie Merch. 
And he kind of, he became the A&R guy there and he brought in like pretty much every metal artist you see now on indie merch, you know? Um, he was like their, their metal point guy. And uh, the Night Shift is just him kind of paring down to like a, a few select bands um, and uh, doing his own thing, you know, on his own, his own time and uh, his own energy. And uh, yeah, he seems to be enjoying it a lot, like having a more personal relationship with uh, the people on the other end, you know, buying, buying merch and he goes above and beyond. You know, so it's definitely working out for us really good and uh, was a smooth transition for sure. It's a, it's awesome. A huge shout out to him because Indie Merch uh, does a great job and it must be hard to, to compete with a, a monster like that. So a uh, huge shout out to Kareem and uh, uh, everyone should check it out. Night Shift Merch. I asked you before we started if you had your craft beer and you do and you're sipping it right now. Vox and Hops is all about hanging out with your metal brothers and metal sisters and talking about their lives, music and craft beer. So what do you have there on your side there, Trevor? I have a grim super swoon. Uh, it's a dry hopped Goza ale, and it's brewed with cashmere, and um, it's very good. I've been on a real uh, sour tear for the last while, and it's kind of like a new thing for me. I didn't quite take to them right away, but now it's like all I can think about. <laughs> so... Uh, I got a ton of different uh, sours uh, delivered today from Grimm's, which is a awesome brewery out here. And I'm still kind of like, I I'm still consider myself pretty new out here in New York. You know, I've been out here only two years and been on tour for probably one year of it. So I'm like still wrapping my head around all the different brands here. And there's just so much great beer and so many, uh, you know, cool breweries. And uh, But Grimm's I like, they seem to have like a, a real focus on sours. They always have a lot of different ones at you know at any time. And um, yeah, definitely liking this. Definitely liking this one. I, I love, love Goza's, uh, that little salty sour. It's just amazing. On my side, I have uh, Echo Session Ales. It's a Session Russe Double Robios. So it's a Session Red Ale with brewed with uh, Robios tea. Uh, this is uh, from one of my good friends, uh, J.F. Lejeunci. Huge shout out for hooking me up with some brews so I can use during my interviews during the quarantine. Uh, much love to Echo Session Ales. I don't normally like Session beers. I've been saying it a lot every time I've been talking about these. But uh, Echo Session Ales does them right. I always find that a Session beer is missing the oomph of an alcohol. But uh, this one pours out nice and uh, slightly uh, reddish. Let's talk about uh, here in Montreal, we cannot get deliveries from breweries. So huge cheers to the New York State for allowing that to happen. Is that something that's always happened or is it just in light of the current affairs? Um, I'm not sure. I th I think it might be in light of current affairs here. Um, I had to show my ID at the curb, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they had it uh, through Grubhub and a few other outlets. Uh, you could get Grimm's. Um, I also looked at ordering some KCBC, but they only do deliveries to Brooklyn on Thursdays. And uh, KCBC is another really cool uh, brewery, Kings County. It's kind of a metal brewery. They did a, a behemoth beer in collaboration with them and a gate creeper beer. Cool. And every time I'm in there, it's got metal heads working behind the, uh, the taps and uh, kind of like an underlying metal vibe to that place, which is very, very cool. Awesome. KCBC. I'll have to make my way out there yep. next time. Yeah, Kings County Brewery. And then we need we need a Black Dahlia beer next. Uh, yeah, yeah. We've done a couple now. We did one with uh, McKellar that was just like out in Europe, basically. And um, 
That was uh, an experiment. Uh, we did a, a dry hopped uh, Hefeweizen. That's cool. Which uh, was it was weird. It was kind of weird, actually. Um, I really like Hefeweizens a lot. I like wheat Same. beers a lot. Um, then the, the next one we did was um, out here in the States. Um, and uh, it was called Warborn. And it had like a cool, like. Um, the same artists that did all the old uh, White Wolf um, games, like uh, uh, Games Workshop shit, like Bolt Thrower artwork. Uh, cool. Uh, definitely cool. It had sort of a uh, two-hearted vibe to it. A two-hearted style. Got it. Yeah, yeah. It was like, you know, it was like red, kind of. And uh, I'm not like a super well-versed beer guy. I just I just drink it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let's touch on you. Uh, take me back to your youth. You're growing up in your house. What music was playing? Well, you were young and you were not in control of the music. What music right. did your parents or guardians listen to? Um, man, uh, they played a lot of. Uh, my dad played a lot of Van Halen. Um, Van Halen is probably uh, one of my favorite bands still, uh, especially the David Lee Roth era. Um, Def Leppard was another one that got me rocking early on. Um, Journey. Foreigner. Uh, I think the first song uh, allegedly I ever sang along to was uh, Jukebox Hero by Foreigner. And I took my uh, G.I. Joe airplane and was playing it like a guitar, <laughs> like sideways. And, uh, you know, singing Jukebox Hero with like a two year old's uh, vocabulary, you know. <laughs> and uh, um, and uh, a lot of like pop from my mom's, my mom, um, a lot of 80s pop. I still like all that stuff. Um, Whitney Houston and uh, Hall of Notes and all the standards, you know, just like I have a really powerful nostalgia for me. Uh, Phil Collins, my mom and aunt, like really, really drilled Phil Collins into my head as a kid. Um, Hello, I Must Be Going is uh, one of my favorite records ever. Uh, my dad also played a lot of Yes, uh, particularly the uh, the big in the 80s record, the uh, 90125 record. That might stand as my favorite album ever now. You know, I didn't realize how much I liked it as a kid. You know, um, I heard it again, like uh, right after high school, I was in a record store, kind of just, you know, walking around looking at stuff. And uh, somebody at the record store played uh, the whole album. And I was like, man, I know every word to this. I know every like drum fill, you know, and it just made me go kind of take the dive and look at it as an adult and you know, I was playing in my own bands by then, and it was the beginning of, of Black Dahlia Murder and stuff. And like, I, you know, you start to like appreciate musicality more when you kind of see it from that side, you know. And just, yeah, I just love that record, man. It's got riffs, it's got great dynamics, and uh, really thoughtful songwriting, and very adventurous album, you know. So, um, you know, there was some guitar-driven stuff that definitely kind of would eventually like lead me to wanting more guitars. I think. You know, like I felt like I wanted to hear guitars do that thrashing sound, but I didn't know yet. You know, I didn't like quite know how to like pin that until, um, you know, Megadeth was really the first big metal dive I took. You know, like I heard the Black Album before that, and that was cool. And like before that, it was kind of like Nirvana, Nevermind, that had me heading towards like a more looking for darker music and more aggressive music. And it was just like, I liked all the hair metal stuff, you know, I went through all that too, but once I heard like the kind of rawness of um, Nirvana, it was just like, whoa, you know, it was like a wake up call kind of, so um, that definitely was 
the turning point where I started to gravitate towards things that were more punky, things that were more loud. And um, yeah, I remember some of those early metal records. I remember hearing um, Anthrax, Attack of the Killer Bees. Um, I made my dad order it from, um, uh, what were they, Columbia House? You know, where you feel like order CDs from the catalog and he'd let I used to get so excited when I get those and then you... Yeah, me too, me too. And then you had to wait for it. Yeah, yeah, you had to wait and you like go through it and you try to like imagine what it's going to sound like, you know what I mean? Like looking at all the heavier stuff and I remember just kind of like, you know, fantasizing about being able to have all this music, you know what I mean? And like really, really trying to hone in on my one choice I was allowed, you know? And I remember getting um, an, uh, Attack of the Killer Bees and that was a, a kind of a weird spot to start with Anthrax because it's like a lot of cover songs and, you know, odds and ends and B-sides and... But um, it had... Um, Bring the Noise on it, the Bring the Noise cover with um, Public Enemy. And just hearing that, like... That blew my mind big time at the at the time, you know. It was like um, fourth fourth grade, maybe something like that. Eventually, my dad like figured out how much swearing was on the CD and, and like took it away and gave it to one of his friends at work. But um, I definitely remember the song uh, "Chromatic Death," which was actually a SOD cover. And just like that was the first time I really heard that thrash guitar picking, you know, where it's just like and it was just so high energy and just so like. Yo, you know, like that was a standout moment that would kind of lead me towards um, going towards thrash. And, you know, I think uh, for my generation, you know, uh, my age, I'm, I'm 38 now. Um, the big four was everything. You know what I mean? Like they were outside of them. It was like Sepultura on Chaos AD right then. And Pantera was just killing it. You know, and like they were like that was like our biblical bands. You know what I mean? Pretty much was. um you know, it was the Beavis and Butthead era. We were all talking like that. You know, we were like, <laughs> like we were like the prototypical kind of like MTV headbanger ball kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of it, it, you know, it's a weird that you could be a product of 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 MTV, but be on that end of the spectrum. You know what I mean? But MTV was a different thing, a different animal back then. You know what I mean? It was cool. I think we all kind of came up on it. You know, all different walks of music lovers came up on it. And uh, we took different things away from it, you know what I mean? And um, definitely loved Headbangers Ball. That was huge. Um, you know, staying up late and seeing what they would play. Um, they had uh, a couple glimpses of, like, early glimpses into death metal for me, you know, hearing Carcass Heartwork on there and uh, Morbid Angel. And, um, you know, my first very, like, beginning toe dips into death metal, I didn't like it at all. Like, I thought this is just way too much, man. This is just, I can't even understand what the fuck is going on. And it seemed, I don't know. It seemed really gratuitous, you know, in the, in the violent themes and stuff. And like, maybe kind of scared me a little bit initially. Um, but, um, eventually I would, uh, buy Pearson within by suffocation. And that was my first, like really? com <laughs> completely full on death metal record. And it was really the cover art that's, that struck me. And, um, you know, I had been playing, like, D&D &D and a few other, like, pen and paper role-playing games early on in elementary school. And then, um, so, you know, I started to notice, like, parallels between the themes of Dungeons and & Dragons and metal. You know, I would cruise the metal aisle and just look at the artwork, you know. Kind of like when you're a kid and you're cruising the horror yes. section of the video store. 
and you're like morbidly kind of drawn yes. to it, you know, and you don't know why, but you're just like, I'm scared of this, but I gotta, I gotta look at it, you know. Like, and then the 18 plus thing was like the, 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 the was right around the corner. Oh yeah, you're like one day, one day, baby, I'm walking through those beads. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> But, you know, I started to cruise the metal aisle and, like, you know, uh, I remember, like, knowing who Megadeth was before I heard them based on, like, Vic. Yes, yes. You know, his, like, recurring character in their, like, posters and artwork and stuff. And I thought that was cool. And, you know, it's just kind of drawing, you know, I was kind of looking at metal as, like, oh, they got, like, skeleton music, you know, like, like dragon music. That's the shit. You know, I got to check this out. So, like, once I took the first dive, you know, like, I was pretty much just already set up to be a metalhead because I was already way into horror, way too early. Um, <laughs> you know, I, my parents didn't want me watching R-rated movies, but you always had that friend that, you know, had a parent that didn't care. That was, like, the loophole guy, you know? And, uh, yeah, that was Mark Capitosio. And in first grade, we were watching, you know, the first Halloween, first Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, first Friday the 13th, um... Night of the Living Dead, uh, Creep Show, like just on rotation basically. And I was drawing people getting their head cut off with crayon, like in first grade. You know what I mean? So <laughs> <laughs> uh, we need to t- <laughs> we need to speak to you about your son. Yeah, yeah. yeah there was a lot of that. Um, now my parents were always kind of cool about it. You know, like um, they just knew I liked macabre stuff. You know what I mean? Like they just I was really drawn to it out of the gate and. Um, it just I just kind of carried it with me into my love of music, you know. Once I figured out that there was macabre music, it was like over, dude. So, um, yeah, that just kind of like blew the whole thing open, man. And uh, Megadeth was really my first love in metal. I used to like painstakingly draw the band members' faces and stuff wow. after school, <laughs> you know, like from the booklet, the CD booklet. And like I had a, sh- a Megadeth shirt for every day of the week. And kids would make fun of me and call me Megadeth, but, like, I wore it like a badge of pride, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> and just, like, I was totally that insano annoying. Usually you see the Metallica kid in your school that's like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? That would, like, take a bullet from Metallica straight up, you know? What I mean? And that was me for Megadeth, man. Um, and then uh, youth, I was waiting so, like, so impatiently for euthanasia to come out. And... Um, my mom picked it up for me on the way home from work the day that it came out. I listened to it all the way through, and I cried because I hated oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> like they were kind of in like a state of reinvention there, you know. Like I think they kind of took that the popularity boil that they had with Countdown, and they thought that maybe if they put a more commercialized rock formula to it, that it was going to take them to bigger heights of popularity. But with that kind of came a um, a loss of some of that venom, it felt like, you know, it wasn't as like, growl, you know, like, well, not as much growl, not as fierce, you know. Um, and I like even then, I mean, I was only in seventh grade, you know, but like I felt kind of uh, betrayed, betrayed by yeah. them, you know, and I, I seriously like had an identity crisis because I was fucking Megadeth man you know what I mean like like what am I gonna do now mom like Jesus Christ like like I seriously had a freak out you know and uh but shortly after that um I think the the misfits kind of filled that gap like when I discovered the old misfits and um they reformed like right after I kind of like discovered them you know so there was excitement about the reformation and 
you know, that kind of consumed my young life in like the ninth grade kind of era there. Um, but yeah, you know, I've always just been like, like kind of fanatical about bands and certain bands. And, um, you know, um, I don't know. I, I kind of see, I try to carry that aspect over into my own band and like with what the fans want from us and what the fans like as far as merch goes. And, you know, I'm still a collector of music. I have somewhere like around 4,000 metal CDs now. Um, I have vinyls too and tapes. I like those too. I like all physical formats pretty much, you know, but I have to stay the course. Like once you have thousands of CDs, you kind of got to just stay the course, no matter how uncool that format may become, you know? (laughs) So like right now I'm like the dinosaur, you know, like CDs aren't cool. Like vinyls and tapes have been, they were gone so long that they came back. That's right. You know what I mean? And like now they're cool. And out here in New York, there's lots of, um, lots of vinyl stores, lots of cool record stores out here, you know? But, um, yeah, I'm still kind of, like, stuck on CDs, you know, and, uh, but I always think about, I always think of it from, like, a collector's aspect, I guess, with what we do, and, um, yeah, as a fan, you know, just try to think about what excites, uh, the kids out there, and what excited me about that metal aisle, you know, when I was 12, and just looking at all the artworks, and trying to kind of embody that with what we do thematically with BDM, and, Visually with BDM, you know, especially the artwork, I try to really stay the course with um, the kind of stuff that would have appealed to me as a kid, you know, the kind of records I would have drooled over and did, you know, back as a kid. And it was always ones with the evil environment on the front, you know, not necessarily focusing so much on a character, but more like an evil landscape or place like a fantastic demon world that you don't want to go in, you know. And then the more you look at it, the, the more little things you pick out. Right, right. There was always cool, like, hidden stuff in there. And there was always, like, a come hither if you dare, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, enter at your own risk kind of statement from it, you know? Like, do you have the balls to go in this house of horrors, you know? like. So, you know, that I try, that's what I try to convey with what we do with Black Dahlia. And I, I see us often being a gateway band for kids to get into the extreme, you know, maybe... Um, like, we've been lucky to be so high profile and be on tours like OzFest where you don't see a lot of death metal, you know what I mean? We were kind of like an ambassador in that. Or Warp Tour, same thing, you know? And, um, you know, I've always seen the band as, an, as a death metal band, but people have called this band so many different genres, and they, they still do, you know? Like, online, anywhere we appear, there's like a three-page genre fight to follow you know <laughs> but we kind of like realized that this misfit status we had so we tried to kind of play to all of our fans whether they think we're a deathcore band or metalcore or death metal or fuck whatever you know and and i see the diversity in fans in our crowd you know i see all different walks of of the underground and you know we try to um s- sort of put our own personal preferences aside sometimes and and tour with what we think the bands that we think the fans will specifically like, you know, and try to appeal to all different walks of our fanhood, you know, and um, it's been interesting, really. It's it's uh, you know, I feel like uh, we had our sights really set on just being known as a death metal band, and I think that would have kind of put a glass ceiling on what we were able to do with this thing, and um, you know, getting those like high profile moments like. You know, when Metal Blade agreed to, like, front the money to put us on OzFest, for example, that was a huge jump in our popularity. That was us being seen on the same tour with um, 
Kill Switch and Shadows Fall, and you know we had a lot of uh, cool bands that were our influences there: The Haunted, Soilwork, In Flames. So you know it was like all of a sudden we weren't just in death metal publications, but we were really like starting to get gain ground as part of like a big metalcore explosion. You know we, we were next to Azalea Dying in the magazines at the time and Unearth. You know and. Um, but, you know, we always thought about kind of being a long-term band. You know, we wanted to really, we wanted this to be a lasting thing. And, um, you know, we've been kind of able to survive the different comings and goings of trends in heavy music, it, it seems like. You know, we, we've kind of seen that metalcore thing through. And then deathcore kind of came to light. And we, you know, we shared enough simil- similarities with that wave of bands. You know, the kind of high-low vocals, the very murderous themes and stuff like that there were a lot of people kind of draw drew parallels to us in deathcore which um you know i never really saw us as part of that scene but i understand the crossover appeal you know so we you know we were kind of mentioned in that same breath kind of all throughout the big deathcore wave which was fine it kept us around it kept us on people's lips and you know it um whatever it did it helped perpetuate this entire thing you know and um so yeah, I'm just thankful. I'm thankful for, you know, kind of being this weird sore thumb band. You know, I think it started with us not looking how we should have. You know, we came out, we had short hair, we were very young, me especially with my glasses, and people were just like, who the hell is this kid? You know, he looks kind of like a weird little serial killer, <laughs> and they look like a bunch of booger eaters, you know, like they just don't look like the death metal kind of standard role. You know, but I think that, that 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 we were such blatant nerds made the band really approachable on this like this kind of street level where it said to people, "Fuck, anybody can play this kind of music." You know what I mean? Like, I feel like we empowered a lot of nerds, <laughs> which is good for death metal. Yeah. yeah, it was cool. It was kind of like we didn't mean to have a message. You know what I mean? We didn't mean to kind of like do that. We just wanted to be cool in the eyes of the long hair, leather clad conglomerate and we've always been kind of clawing at that i think that we we win more of those true metal guys over with each record you know just kind of staying our course and you know it's all been influenced by by carcass and at the gates and uh darkane and metallica megadeth uh, in flames early in flames early soil work you know so like our, our, our hearts were in the right place but we just were kind of like also punk rockers on the side in our life you know what i mean so it gave us a really unique, I think, flavor to people. I think it made some people hate us right out of the gate, maybe, too, that maybe came around to us later, you know? I think people were, a lot of people were guarded about us. Maybe the, the band name was very, um, you know, it would become kind of synonymous with um, metalcore bands of that era, you know, naming your band after a crime or a evil happening, you know, like you've got your Dillinger escape plan and, um, you know just handshake murders and just all different kinds of things like that. And the name starting with the, you know, the, the band name is definitely a product of that time for sure. You know what I mean? Like, um, you guys were young. Though. Yeah, we were, we were definitely young. And, um, that was kind of one of the selling points about us. Like these guys are really young, you know, look at these young kids like doing this, <laughs> <laughs> but they can do it. These young nerds, you know, and the funny thing was, at first, we really couldn't do it. Uh, like, when we made Unhallowed, uh, we could barely play. We were really reaching t- 
to record the stuff that was on Unhallowed, and we didn't have any touring experience under our belts at all. Um, that was really the struggle was to get mobilized and get on tour and, you know, getting signed to Metal Blade, they kind of facilitated that, um, getting us into a vehicle, you know what I mean? Uh, that was a huge obstacle for us back in the day was like, no, no vehicle. And then obviously getting an actual release out there to get reviewed and, you know, create a demand for your band outside of, you know, cause we were just a local band. We kicked around Michigan for three years. We were terrible. Nobody liked us. Um, <laughs> we were definitely <laughs> kind of more just by default kind of thrown into the hardcore scene. Uh, there wasn't really a fully tangible separate death metal scene here. Or I, I said here, but uh, I'm not in Michigan. Still live there in your mind. But, but in Michigan, I'm talking about. Yeah, in my mind. In Michigan, like, uh, you know, you had a lot of different facets of the hardcore scene, kind of like like metalcore with the Swedish influence was really starting to pop off then. And you had a lot of heavy sounds kind of crossing over. And you had shows where Circle of Dead Children, you know, they were more of a death metal style. But they were playing with Poison the Well, like, uh, you know what I mean? Just like weird mm-hmm. show combinations. And so it wasn't weird for us in Michigan to be on shows with Throwdown or Bane or, um, you know, and and uh, those shows were really challenging because we had, um, you know, even the very primitive BDM, it, it had more chops than the, than the average hardcore band that we were playing alongside. So we had to figure out how to play our instruments and have a stage presence at the same time and not just be standing there looking at our guitars like playing this more complex shit. And we felt really challenged by these hardcore bands that had more simplistic music, but they were able to like put on a show. Yeah. Yeah. They put on a show, break down that fourth wall easily. And um, still a lot of my stage moves and kind of the environment I want to create on stage is a lot like a hardcore show. Like I enjoy when there's no barrier I enjoy when people can get up on stage and cra- and stage dive. I enjoy when I can put the mic down into people's mouth and sing. And that's more of a hardcore move than a typical kind of death metal move. You know what I mean? And, um, yeah, that just kind of, uh, it taught us to really attack with our stage presence. You know what I mean? Like to really try to be exciting and really just show your passion and kind of leave it all on the stage. And, you know, um, so in a way there is, there always has been a kind of, core aspect to Black Dahlia, you know, in, in that essence that we, like, really haven't lost in our old age, I think. I think we still kind of bring that immediacy to the stage. And, uh, you know, I feel like we really thrive in a, a mid-to-small club. You know, I think that's the best way to see, to see us and uh, hopefully be a show that's not, like, lorded over by too much security, you know? Same, yeah. Like, I, I, tr- I trust the crowd, you know? I feel like we can trust each other, you know, to not get too, too, too hairy for the most part. If there's an, if, you know, the, the capacity is respected. Right, right, for sure, for sure. That's, that's always the best part. If there's the right amount of people in the room, uh-huh. then everyone's there to have a good time. You know, and I like big shows, too. I like, you know, big a big outdoor festival, and there's something to be said about... If you can create a real mania at a festival and just feel that kind of returned energy, energy. <laughs> it mostly is energy, honestly. You Sadly feel yes. you feel that energy coming back at you. 
And um, you know how it is. It's like it's like a high kind of like you can't really get anywhere else. It's just that um, relationship between your live playing and the crowd and that like reciprocal kind of back and forth magic. You know what I mean? Like it's like, that's why we do it. It's like nothing else, really. It's it's kind of hard to completely verbalize it to people. You know, but um, I think ultimately... Hair on your arms standing up. Really, it's like that, you know, and, uh, you know, I still have nerves going up there. I think that, I think every, everybody does. I think that that's natural, you know, uh, to kind of have that, like, whoa, here we go, you know, yeah. like, let's take the fucking I hope, jump. I, I hope it works tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, there's always a degree of doubt. There's always a little degree of worry, you know, but I think that that's natural. I think it's human. And um, I think we should stop if we don't have that. Yeah, yeah, I think so, too. I think, you know, I think it's then a, you'll be lazy and, and right, you know, uninspired. And, you know, I look at every show as a challenge. I look at every show as like, um, you know, as being a front man, I try to really address more people. Like I, or the reason I started wearing my glasses again in recent years was that I was just able to communicate with each person on a personal level like i can lock eyes with them i can do the whole like i fucking see you thing with my hands and point at them you know and single people out and i really try to speak to every single person in the crowd at least for a second you know so like i really try to spread myself around and try to give people that kind of aha moment where they go was he looking at me just now like you know what i mean like uh and, uh, and they'll remember that. They'll definitely remember for that. For sure. And it, it's definitely working in that regard. And it's just, it's more fun for me to like, to be able to see the reaction explicitly on people's faces. Whereas the years I spent blind on stage um, were fun too, but I just couldn't see with that amount of detail, you know? Instead, it was more like I was a cat in a bag, just kind of sh- shaking up, take your glasses off and jump into this weird world, you know? It was kind of like the view was kind of like when you put on the ring in Lord of the Rings, you know, <laughs> everything's just like whoosh past you. So it's definitely cool to see. You know, I realize I'm kind of like, you know, maybe subjecting myself to even more uh, trolls by wearing my glasses on stage. You know, I know it's not the quote unquote cool look or cool thing to do, but it's just me, man. I'm just being myself. I just want to fucking see people, and I want to make that special connection happen, you know? It's also maybe where you, like, not wearing the glasses, was it a way to protect yourself because you were nervous, so you weren't seeing the crowd? It was, yeah. It was kind of like, it was. A, it became a separate world, where, like, I only ever had my glasses off, like, that was the only time, you know what I mean? So, so sleeping and on stage. Right, yeah. so it was, like, a kind of a vulnerable feeling, you know? Like, um, yeah, like I said, like a real kind of... You know, a cat in a bag just shaken up and let go. You know what I mean? So I I just felt kind of like a wild animal, you know? And, um, but yeah, going back to the glasses was a good move. I really like the whole kind of uh, rapport you can have with people, even people far back into the crowd. And um, I'm up there with no glasses strap. Like there's some kind of, I enjoy... I enjoy the gamble. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I wanted to ask you if you had if you had two pairs of glasses. I should. I really should, man. I could destroy these any second, man. They could just go flying off my head and never be seen again. And then I'll be I'll be really screwed. I broke my glasses once on tour, and I would basically be, was an infant. Like <laughs> we were over in Europe. 
uh, doing um, festivals and I couldn't read the signs backstage. <laughs> um, my vision is so bad that I couldn't see what the food was at catering. <laughs> and I had to have someone like just be like Take that. seriously holding Take that. holding my hand through everything. <laughs> and it just it was humiliating, man. It was so bad. You had a good tour manager. Yeah, he definitely was like, all right, baby Trev, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I once, we had a day off. I don't know if I've said this on the podcast yet. We had a day off in Italy. Our van broke down, of course. So we just went to the beach and drank way too many beers. And I decided to go swimming with my glasses. Horrible idea. And lost them in the whatever, the sea or wherever we were. And I was blind for the rest of the tour. It was a real pain in the ass. Oh, it's so bad, dude. Like, yeah. It's funny. I mean, if you're really that, you know, vision impaired like me, man, it was seriously like I was like, okay, here I am. I'm, I'm fucking handicapped straight up, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I cannot operate normally without somebody's help, you know. I want to touch on your obituarist. Yes. How do you listen to so much music? Where do you find the time? Uh, I imagine people must send you stuff. Um, or are you hunting for stuff? I have a lot. There's a lot of, like, different kind of methods I have. Um I have a blank Facebook, like I don't use Facebook, a personal profile at all, but what I do with it, I kind of have to have it to uh, operate the band's Facebook, you know, like you need to have a personal account. So with that blank Facebook, I just follow every fucking band ever that I like, every label, every distro, um, so basically I have this news stream that's just constantly honed in on metal there's no no friends there's no personal stuff like it's just way more metal info than you could ever handle at once and i also use uh metal archives a lot i will uh look ahead for a couple months and i'll put in like uh use the the big search engine you know put in like death metal album and ep uh 2020 and i'll look into the next couple months and i will uh, make a running list on my uh, desktop of, of bands that I know that are coming out. And uh, I'll just watch certain labels, you know, and I'll basically just try anything on some of them. You know, like uh, uh, Season of Mist is a very dependable label, I find. And uh, they have this, like, underground division now, too. Cool. And pretty much anything that comes out in that little leg of their label, like, is fucking fire. So it's really, like, once you learn the labels, all the different labels out there... And uh, if you really just put your blinders onto the rest of the world's noise, you know what I mean? To kind of hone in on it with this kind of like Rain Man enthusiasm that I have. It's really easy to stay on top of it all. And, um, you know, I did switch over from doing the obituarist as a column to uh, a Spotify playlist, which, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a catch-22, man, because I feel like the goal of the whole column was to get people to buy physical copies of things and really support the scene. But then sending them, you know, a link to a streaming a platform and a streaming playlist is kind of like shooting the whole thing at its foot beforehand, you know what I mean? So I really, I felt kind of guilty about switching to that format. But um, it's been, it was... Getting to the point where, you know, I was writing about 25, 30 bands a month and, uh, you know, a few paragraphs on each band. I just got burnt on it. I got burnt on the adjectives, you know, 
this is so brutal. It's skull crushing. It's fucking <laughs> teeth breaking. It's it's you know, it's just like I definitely wanted to touch on that on your break to see. Yeah, it, it's it's not that I ran out of steam for finding new bands. Like I'm always on the hunt, and um, really, I was doing all this before that anyway. You know, like I like I said, I have a collection. I buy albums. I have I'm getting CDs in the mail every week. You know, I have a constant influx of of, of music, and. Um, you know, I also, I still uh, dip my toe into the, the downloading world, too. You know, I've, uh, you can learn what comes out by watching the blogs. Like, blogs, like, have every genre covered, you know what I mean? And uh, that's a pretty good way to stay up on what comes out. And um, uh, still still grinded out on Soulseek, checking out new bands and kind of dabbling. And I use kind of downloading as, like... The litmus test for a new band, you know, or YouTube, too, is a great place to hear new stuff. But, um, you know, I'm definitely an advocate for physical music, and it's, it all informs the end, the end game, which is getting the CD in my hands and getting, the, you know, money into the band's pocket, hopefully. Which is hopefully what, what people are doing with your Spotify playlist now. Right, I hope so. So I'm like, I, I don't want to inspire the wrong thing, you know what I mean? Like, I really hope that people... We'll t- we'll start with the playlist and then seek the albums out in the in the real world, or even you know downloading uh, uh, you know legal digital copies through through Bandcamp, which is like a, I love that for you know that that platform so much. That or and then it'll inspire them to go to a show and pick up a shirt. And- right, right. You know, just just to kind of like just I try to to show my kind of enthusiasm for the scene and how much I go to shows when I can and. You know, I, I thought it would be a good look for the band overall, as the band has become um, so popular and kind of like become so visible. Uh, I thought it would give us a more like people would see that we are genuine about about extreme music. You know, and it wasn't just like you know that that um, I see different bands that are I think maybe being too selfish. They won't they won't recommend another band. They won't give props to another band like they're afraid they're going to give their fans away or something but in i think in reality the fans are so thankful to have a little bit of guidance a little bit of like a push you know what i mean to kind of check things out and to kind of like see my fanhood at that like real basic level you know i think uh i try to lead by example you know with that and uh we should be leaders we should we should we should all be pushing the scene upwards yeah, yeah, you know, I, I feel like uh, I'm just using the high-profile platform that we have now to kind of try to lift the whole scene up, you know, and I go, you know, there's people that would hate on our band for, for playing Warp Tour, you know what I mean, but I kind of, we got, we went as Black Dahlia Murder, you know, we didn't compromise our music at all, we didn't compromise our performance, we went as ambassadors for heavy music, is kind of how I feel about it, and... um you know, it was an avenue to get in front of a lot of young people that hadn't heard anything like that. And we were the only extreme band on the whole tour. You know, it wasn't really one of the metal-centric lineups that they kind of did on the way out. It was, we were really a sore thumb. So... Was it hard to, to agree as a band to do that one? Uh, yes and no. Like, I have really fond memories of going to it as a kid. But um, I didn't realize like how much the lineup style had changed from no effects and, you know, being really fat records, heavy and bad religion. And, 
you know, a lot of the punk bands that we all came up on, like, as kids uh, in Black Dahlia Murder, uh, to more of a, like, emo-centric kind of thing, you know? Uh, lots of, like, bands that have one singer that's clean all the time and one that screams. That was the big thing that year. for And uh, so, yeah, it was... Uh, it was annoying on a certain level, you know what I mean, to be there and to like walk around with just all this music you didn't want to like that wasn't po- wasn't part of our normal world, you know what I mean? But uh I've I've heard that it's it's one of the most rigorous tours. It's very draining. It, it was, and a lot of it had to do with that there was no fixed schedule of when you would play. You find out what time slot you have at like 10 a.m. And it it could be 11 a.m. You know what I mean? So like like I just remember like losing sleep, kind of like wondering what was going to happen, and kind of you know who knows, trying to prepare for the worst. And uh, <laughs> it was ex- insanely hot. The food lines were insanely long, and uh, eventually we started to just kind of you know spend our own money on food and and like barbecue, you know, so just so we could be like away from everybody and away from the like kind of like there's kind of like a Jesus ca- like Jesus summer camp vibe to it. Like okay. <laughs> there's all these like like good guy bands, quote unquote, and bands that I think only tour on warp tour, so they're like overly excited about it, like even though it is so grueling. And like you know, like you're in line and the person in front of you will turn around and be like, Hi, I'm blah blah blah, you know, like how are you today? And like I'm fucking hung over and I yeah, want my coffee. Like, God damn it. <laughs> So it was kind of weird to see that world, you know, where, like, fans literally only play, like, Warp Tour, you know, like, only tour on Warp Tour, and it was different, you know? There's, uh, there were a lot of, like, um, a lot of bands that kind of were recurring bands on Warp Tour, you know? And, uh, yeah, it was just a, a unique view into a different world, basically. Um, yeah, it was di- definitely different for us. As, as you mentioned, the food court uh, waiting in line, I just remember the last time we were together, and it was at With Full Force Festival in Germany during that epic rainstorm where they canceled the whole fucking day. Oh, yeah. And you guys Man. were about to play. Yeah. Yeah, and all of our equipment was on stage, and it got fucking soaked, dude. We were, like, bailing water out of guitar boats. Oh, my God. And um, we had to take apart, like... So the many different module. electronics. Yeah. yeah, dude. That was uh, one of the darkest days in the band's history, honestly. like It felt like like we were about to lose so much money and equipment, you know, that it was going to like be a real hiccup in our, our our whole thing. You know what I mean? Like, it was really one of the, the darkest days in the band, for sure. And we got damn lucky that the stuff still works. And uh, awesome. there were a lot of helpful texts from other bands that kind of like extended their hand and came over and like our whole bus was just people taking apart amp heads and stuff for a while and you know i i uh it was uh, a lot of bands were very helpful for it to us that day and you know were very cool but damn man that's what the metal family is it was cool yeah i definitely felt that that family vibe that day and uh definitely thankful for everybody that stepped up like that but damn that was devastating at the time man to kind of like come back right after the storm like was over and just observe all of our equipment just like strewn everywhere and just literally the guitar boat full of guitars and water you know what i mean like just like 
a fucking nightmare come to life, you know? <laughs> well, I'm glad it worked out. One last question. Uh, what is your hangover cure? Um, man, I try a lot of different stuff. Um, weed always is great. It takes a good percentage of that pain kind of down and the nausea. Uh, pickle juice mm-hmm. out of the jar. Uh, it's good. It's got electrolytes in it. Um, Pedialyte sometimes if it's like super duper bad, you know, like <laughs> I'll be going there January 1st to CVS to get get a <laughs> Pedialyte sometimes, uh, you know, just like the most disgusting food you can find. Uh, I'm sure uh, poutine is a great one. You know, I've definitely pulled, definitely pulled that one out in Canada a few times. Uh, something greasy and heavy and just like that will absorb lots of, you know, alcohol hanging around. Yeah, that's that's pretty much all I can think of, man. You know, hair of the dog too. Who knows? <laughs> Sometimes that, that, it's just, it works, but it's so dangerous because then you don't stop and you just keep going. Yeah, you'll just end up doing it again, and you'll have another hangover on your hand. You know, <laughs> so you got to tread tread carefully with that whole road. New record is coming out. Uh, I'm so stoked for it. I am. Everything I've heard is amazing. Ah, uh, thanks, man. I imagined. I didn't think you guys would be able to top the last one. Oh, thanks, dude. I've been telling you, I call it your slaughter of the soul. Oh, damn. Thanks, man. That's that's huge, dude. You know, it does feel kind of like a a special time right now and a, a special album with a little bit more of a creative edge to it, I think, than Nightbringers. And I think the success of Nightbringers and the kind of creative juices that Brandon Ellis brought to the fold, like joining the band, has just empowered us to make this kind of special album right now you know super happy thank you so much for coming sharing a craft beer with me i can't wait to do it again in person yeah man i look forward to it man we're gonna we're gonna defeat this thing brother absolutely cheers cheers homie Hey, thank you so, so much for listening right to the end. You know that I love and appreciate that. As uh, I mentioned during the interview, uh, my first U.S. tour was with the Black Dahlia Murder, and Trevor was just so nice and welcoming, and he's always been just the nicest dude, and he is one of the nicest dudes in death metal. So huge shout-out and much love and respect to Trevor and the rest of the Black Dahlia gang for just being some of the best dudes in metal. Much love and respect. I hope that you guys have had a great week. I have had a great week connecting with you. I hope that you are staying creative. As I mentioned, I am challenging you all to use this time effectively and to push yourselves. Have a great weekend. I'm going to be back at you next Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, three episodes a week. But until then, remember to enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. Cheers, Vox and Hopsheads. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan, and this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street.